Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the Adequately Informed Podcast. This one is for Monday, February 3rd, second month, episode 17. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we doing here? Well, Joe, I think it's uh, pretty good what we're doing here. We're trying to, once a week, blast ourselves into your eardrums using our preferred methods of entry, good faith discussion, and honest, adequately informed discourse. And, and we understand that real Americans like you deserve a real American beer. And with that, we bring to you beer water from American Dad, the true beer of adequately informed. But we know that's not the most perfect beer, and we know we're not perfect, Good and that we're going to be wrong. We're going to be wrong a lot. And we're also not on the ivory tower. We know that while we have a viewpoint, we believe it's not the only valid viewpoint. So we look to have discussion that gives credence to other viewpoints. Now, it sometimes get a little hard because both Evan and I share a pretty similar viewpoint. (laughs) But if we uh, when we come to it, we like to give uh, give the benefit of the doubt to good faith discussion, but not bad faith discussion. But maybe someday we'll have to interface with that. But not today, not today, not today. Evan. Yes, Joe. What do you want to talk about? Well, as those who know me well know, I love sports. Specifically, I love baseball and football. But a lot of times there's not something in the sports world that I think rises to the level of general interest. So I don't get to talk about sports super often. But currently, Major League Baseball is still reeling from a huge scandal that I think does have implications for the way that we think about fairness, punishment, and the integrity of professional sports. So this week, I want to talk about the Houston Astros sign-stealing scandal. Okay, I'll let you. Thank you. Essentially, in the 2017 and 2018 baseball seasons, the Houston Astros used a camera positioned in center field in Minute Maid Park, their home stadium, to look at the signals that catchers were giving pitchers. And this recording was streamed into the dugout where the coaches could study the signs, learn what each different little hand signal meant, and then relay that information to the batters so that they would be able to know what pitch was coming. Obviously, hitting a baseball is very difficult, even if you know what pitch is coming, but knowing the pitch, knowing that you're expecting a curveball at least lets you expect a curveball and therefore makes it easier to hit than if you get a curveball when you're thinking you're getting a fastball. So this is not an insignificant method of of giving yourself an advantage. Now, the way that the Astros were able to relay the information to the hitters was mainly accomplished through hitting a trash can. Essentially, the players and the coaches had devised a system whereby a different way or method of banging on the trash can at different speeds or different intensities could communicate to the hitters what pitch was coming. 
And this worked extraordinarily well for the Astros. They actually, if, if, if uh, you've been paying attention to sport, the sports world, you'll recall that the Astros won the 2017 World Series in part by using this system of sign stealing. And there have also been further allegations that certain players wore devices on their bodies which could vibrate and give them the information without having to go through the added layer of the trash can hitting. That's and great. So it was like a fucking Olive Garden, you know, your table is ready device. Yeah. <laughs> but on a uh, on a major league hitter. Yeah, and this has not been confirmed. The Major League Baseball did a report and they could not conclude the veracity of this, but we have two pretty strong pieces of evidence to suggest oh, right up that there with the Warren Commission. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, so it, it may be a good indication. And number one is that Jose Altuve hit a walk-off home run against Aroldis Chapman to end the ALCS that year. And while obviously fuck Aroldis Chapman, um, when he was rounding the bases for his final celebration for the walk-off hit, he refused to let his teammates tear his jersey off, which is customary when someone has a walk-off home run. Why would he do this? Well, possibly to obscure the fact that he was wearing one of these devices. However, his teammate Josh Reddick was not quite so smooth, and there are existing photographs and videos of him in post-game interviews with what appears to be some sort of device taped to his shoulder. So... I think that there's pretty strong evidence to suggest that that was going on. Other players like Trevor Bauer have heard reports of this as well. So that's sort of circulating within the baseball community. And I think if it were investigated more fully, we'd find that that was happening. So what people need to understand about the sign stealing scandal is that sign stealing itself is not forbidden in major league baseball. People throughout history have either through looking at the catcher on second base or some guys have even gone through crazier methods like using a legitimate telescope to try to discern signs. It's actually an unwritten part of the game where the Astros violation comes in is in using devices to assist them. And maybe it's a little bit arbitrary. I would grant that, but you can just stand on second base as a base runner and try to decode the opponent's signs, and there's nothing against that. But when you use a camera in center field to learn these signs, you have violated a written rule of baseball. So this is one of the most blatant and flagrant rule violations in MLB history that we have that has come to light. And the Astros used this to their own advantage in a very meaningful way. However, in 2019, former Astros pitcher Mike Fires is the one who blew the whistle on this cheating scandal and the sign stealing. In a report with The Athletic, he came clean about the system, and an MLB investigation corroborated everything that he had said. And so we're just now, after the conclusion of Major League Baseball's report beginning to see the fallout. So far, three different managers have been taken down because of this. The Astros fired manager A.J. Hinch, the Red Sox fired manager A.J. Cora, who was the bench coach for the Astros at the time of the scandal and was one of the 
main players being the man who hit the trash can to communicate to the hitters. And then the Mets fired Carlos Beltran, who was a player at the time and had just been hired as their manager. And so uh, in addition, the Astros fired general manager Jeff Lunau because he was said to have been complicit or otherwise responsible for not stopping the scandal. And the MLB has levied the most significant sanction on a team in history, fining the Astros $5 million and stripping them of four top draft picks over the next few years. Now, the interesting thing is that the MLB has said that no players will be disciplined for their participation in this scandal, even though they were actively cheating. And this is where it gets interesting to me because baseball is a culture which really prides itself on its purity and making sure that its records and achievements stand up across all eras. And for this reason, historically, cheaters have been punished very severely. Pete Rose has been banned for baseball from life, even though he's the MLB career hits leader, a fantastic player. He gambled on the results of Major League Baseball games, which, for obvious reasons, raises public doubts about the integrity of baseball outcomes if players themselves are wagering on the outcomes of games. Even though Pete Rose didn't ever tank games, there's no evidence that it affected his performance. In fact, he was still able to put together a Hall of Fame-worthy career, but just the suggestion of impropriety is enough to give him a permanent ban. Similarly, in 1918, when the Chicago White Sox threw the World Series to the Cincinnati Reds in what would eventually become known as the Black Sox scandal, where professional gamblers paid them to lose the World Series because they were heavily favored, and therefore the gamblers could make money by betting the law on the long shot Reds, players who were on that team who weren't even involved in the scandal, like Shoeless Joe Jackson and Buck Weaver, were banned for life by Major League Baseball just for being associated with it. So I find it extraordinarily hypocritical that players like Jose Altuve, like George Springer, who benefited from this, will receive no punishment at all. You know, me as the kind of not as sportsy guy, oh, I love a good cheating scandal. (laughs) I love them. They are as innate to sports as sports are to themselves. Like every competition has had their like own cheating scandal. And I love the kind of ingenuity and or workarounds that people come up with, how clever they can be. And when it all comes tumbling down, all the arguments about it, it's always yeah. just a fun time. I love it. <laughs> and we've definitely had that here because Astros manager AJ Hinch was suspended by the MLB and fired, but apparently he was less guilty of orchestrating the scheme and more guilty of not stopping it from happening. There are actually reports that on multiple occasions, Hinch personally went to the center field camera and destroyed it only to have other members of his organization put it back up. (laughs) But yeah, but he obviously didn't report any of this to Major League Baseball and didn't use his power as a manager to stop it from happening. So I understand 
the rationale in disciplining him, even though we can all accept that his heart wasn't in the cheating scandal. He didn't he didn't do enough to stop it as the most powerful man in that organization, at least on the on-field level. Yeah. But and man, so I think I, I love some yeah, cheating. Go ahead. I, I think love it that when it I think that the MLB has kind of two paths to sort of right this wrong, especially with the discrepancy between player discipline in the past and in the future. Either, either they need to reverse their stance and suspend Astros players, if not outright ban them who knew about this cheating and participated in it, or, and, and I think you could even go farther and perhaps vacate that World Series victory because it, there's definitely strong reason to believe that it's illegitimate. Even though, you know, the argument is they still played half their games on the road where they couldn't do the cheating. They were still really good players. That's all true, but it sort of doesn't detract from the clear advantage they gained, they gained through this explicitly illegal activity. And then the other thing you could do is reverse your historical stance on player discipline. Let Pete Rose into the damn Hall of Fame. Put Shoeless Joe Jackson, one of the greatest contact hitters in the sports history. If, if you are not going to discipline Jose Altuve and the Astros players for actively cheating, don't you dare withhold a Hall of Fame berth from someone who never cheated but was on a team with cheaters. Because this had this had real consequences. You know, as, as a Cubs fan, you have to look at what happened to you, Darvish. He was a Dodgers pitcher in the 2017 World Series, and he had had a great year he was widely considered one of the top starting pitchers in the game, but the Astros stole his signs and he had a horrible World Series. He got absolutely lit up and it affected him psychologically to fail on that big stage, affected his performance even into the 2018 and 2019 seasons, all because of something that someone else did illegally. And there's really no way to make reparations for you, Darvish. I, I don't really like the Dodgers because they're sort of one of the big evil empires, but it sucks that they didn't get to play in a fair World Series in 2017. And their fans should be outraged by that. I know I would be. Um, it, This type of thing isn't unpre unprecedented. I think about, you know, the New England Patriots deflate gate scandal that came about, I want to say 2014 in the AFC championship game, which I won't get into here. But this entire scandal has been such a bad look for Major League Baseball. It's exposed their leadership as hypocritical and it has compromised fans belief in the integrity of the game. See, I also love these impassioned speeches like the one you just gave. <laughs> Those are also great. Because well, as a as an outsider, you know, I, you know, it, it it doesn't mean as much to me. But you know, seeing people caring about it, oh, it's nice to know that people care about things. And, and uh, I I want to go. Oh, but it's just a sport. But I mean, it's something you care about, and a lot of people care about. So it does mean something. And like I said, even beyond like my interest as a passive observer, how do you how do you justify doing that to a guy like you, Darvish? His professional career has been irreversibly damaged by this because someone cheated 
and was, was able to make him appear like a worse pitcher. He internalized that he was a worse pitcher and it affected him psychologically. So that I think, you know, beyond any of the on-field results, how do you in any way not feel outrage for the psychological damage done to a guy like Darvish? Yeah, sucks, man. It does suck. Business. And Big business. And so um, that's pretty much all my thoughts on it. I'm glad that, uh, that Joe found it interesting, and I hope that – that you will as well. Um, yeah, Houston Astros. If, if you're if you're a fan of them for some reason, it's time to jump 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 ship. This is ridiculous. Watch it. This is going to be our most popular segment of all time. I sure hope so. Joe, what do you want to talk about? Oh, I want to talk about what every Democratic debate wants to talk about, and that's healthcare. Yay. So, <laughs> <laughs> healthcare what a wonderful subject to be in the fucking ground every single fucking time but recently vox has had a new series that they've been doing on healthcare i think it's called like everybody covered and it's it's been a series where they go to other countries that have universal healthcare and see how they do it because there's been a lot of talk in the united states about trying to get universal healthcare and, you know, Bernie Sanders always brings out all the, the point that every other developed nation in the world has universal health care and all this stuff. And, you know, we kind of have a limited understanding of it in the United States. The, the one that we look towards the most is Canada because they're right next door. But the Canadian system is kind of an anomaly, an anomaly in universal healthcare systems from around the world and is also pretty far from whatever vision or whatever values we would express in a healthcare system in the United States. So one, uh, they did a podcast recently on the weeds that featured uh, Dylan Matthews and Sarah Cliff, a reporter at the New York Times and Matthew Iglesias, and they discussed the healthcare system of Australia and why that's, you know, an interesting parallel that would be good for the United States. So the way they do it in Australia is that there is a single payer public system that covers everybody, but it's not the greatest in the world. Like you can go to any public hospital, get treated for anything, any procedure you need to get done, they'll take care of it. But it's not the quickest. It's a little overburdened. You gotta wait a while. So in Australia, they actively encourage people to take up additional private health insurance. And this helps alleviate the public market. And you know, people people want to feel like I mean they do in Australia, and, and I feel like this would be the case here, that Yes, everybody's covered under, you know, everybody has access to health care. Everybody is able to seek treatment if they have a life-threatening ailment. But some people, they, you know, they want a little bit more from their experience. They, If they want to, they want to be able to, if they have money and want to throw money at the problem, that they'll be able to do it. Canada's system very poignantly makes private health insurance 
illegal. Like there are fines or, you know, or uh, punishment to doctors if they treat people through private health insurance or, uh, you know, through private care and not through the public system, which, you know, as much as we want to kind of make a, a kind of a progressive moral plea that everybody should have the best quality health insurance. You know, there's only so much health insurance that can exist. There are probably going to have to be co-pays and stuff like that, which Sanders and his Medicare for all plan does not include. So one, I, 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 uh, in this podcast, which maybe I'll link in the, in the show notes, I, you know, there's a great discussion of the, Australian healthcare system, which at least in their experience, you know, they keep their costs in line. Everyone's overall satisfied with the system. It it goes to the goals of everybody should have health insurance, at least some form. But I believe that in America, most of us do believe that if we want to try and shell out some money for something a little bit better, you know, a little shorter wait times, maybe some better food in the hospital, maybe a uh, easier to get a, an appointment with a general practitioner that, you know, if you have the money or you don't want to devote the money towards it, then you should be able to get it. But if you are without money, you should be able to still get health insurance. So that's, that's one war it you know, version of things that I like to explore or, you know, it seems like the, uh, healthcare policy sphere, at least, you know, what is deemed progressively acceptable is only just a full out blanket Medicare for all cover everybody ban insurance world. And I don't think that's the only way that can happen. And I don't think that's the way that it will happen in the United States. You know, Medicare for all became a push because of two factors. One, Medicare is popular. And two, it is believed that the president could or a Congress with a a slim majority in the Senate through uh, budget reconciliation could theoretically give Medicare to everybody in the United States real easily by just changing the minimum age for Medicare. So that's where the whole Medicare for all thing came from. But, you know, as a policy position, while I believe in the ideals of it, I don't know if it would quite be the roadmap for how an American universal healthcare system would work. But that's just me. So here's my take on it. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to discover that I'm a little bit different from Joe here. Shocking, right? Um, But I will start by saying that universal coverage is a noble goal and the more people who are able to get health care the better and i'm not going to try to be a purist on it and uh, i think that in this case i'm definitely of the better is better camp but i definitely think that in an ideal world it's single payer because medical care is something that is too important to put into a tiered system. There should be no difference, you know, maybe when we talk about like, you know, better food at the hospital or whatever, that's kind of trivial. But when it comes to actually getting care, 
there should be no difference. You shouldn't be able to throw money at it to get better treatment than someone else, in my opinion. And I, I, I tell you guys, this is this is kind of personal to me. In 2018, I was injured on the job, and thankfully, I was able to go to an emergency room and have that all taken care of through workers' comp. However, the that's because the like initial hospital that you go to is sort of like required to accept your workers' comp. So they had to see me, and then I had to go through their health system. But the doctors there never took me seriously about the degree of shoulder pain that I was experiencing, and they refused to even give me any sort of x-rays or MRIs or tests to look for structural damage. They said, oh, you're young, so the the you know not, you'll heal. But I didn't heal. And to this day, I still am dealing with shoulder pain stemming from this injury that I incurred in 2018. So obviously the logical solution is find a different doctor. So I've tried, but taking this workers comp to a different doctor has been impossible. No one is willing to see me for the workers comp rate. And so to this day, I'm still dealing with the shoulder problem, even though hypothetically it should be covered. And my takeaway from this experience is this. In a world where there is government-funded healthcare and private healthcare, there will always be incentive for treatment providers to favor those who have it, who have private healthcare. And that to me does not fit into my utopian worldview. Again, if uh, at least the system allowed me to get the initial treatment. So I'm not saying that there was no benefits to it, but in in I, I strive for a world where everyone gets all the care they need. And I think that in the, the end game of the med- medical system, I hope for single payer, but I would be willing to accept incremental steps in the meantime. Well, your your issue is not so much with tiered insurance and availability of that. It's more with how legally the healthcare system in the United States is allowed to operate. So in the United States, most doctors, I mean, they're their own like independent business. They can take up patients as they'd like. They can, you know, do this or that. They have a huge amount of leverage on whoever they seek. So if this was under the Australian system and you had your work comp claim that was of, you know, paid out low at a lower tier than a, you know, private insurance claim, you would be able to go to a public hospital and see a public doctor and they would have to see you. They would have to treat you for the pain. There would be no having to shop around. Maybe it would take a little bit longer to do that, but they would still be giving you the care that you would need. It would only be that at the private hospitals, they may not accept you and may not accept your uh, medical work because it is not at a higher tier. But when everybody's on the full coverage of you know public care at it, you know at least from the outset, you know in Australia the additional private care isn't exclusionary. It's building upon what is the 
uh, the platform, the rock bottom, I mean, not rock bottom, but the baseline of what the, uh, you know, universal public care is. You know, it is, you know, it is mostly, at least in the way the system is set up in Australia, it is just like cutting down on wait times. It's, you know, better hospital food. It's stuff along the margins and not wholesale excluding people from being able to get care. People are still able to get the care that they need. It's just at a slightly better uh, version at the private hospitals for people with private insurance. So the way the American healthcare sit, I mean, it would be like, you know, if you were to go to a public hospital, which we don't have a whole lot of those. They would have to change how things work in the United States. But just because there is private health insurance does not mean that you would get excluded from getting care. Well, I I definitely I I can appreciate that, that if there is a greater public hospital system, that care will improve for everyone. But I still I'm, I'm just sort of skeptical that. It really is just things at the margins that will be uh, paid for at these private hospitals. I still see it as inevitably a system where some people will be better off than others on something that is as basic as medical care. So it's a small distinction, but still meaningful to me. So somebody just having a slightly better room is, you know, worth not having the system. Like, I mean, you did say the better is better, but, you know, I just get so wrapped up in this conversation because, yeah, we do. You know, we had our conversation where we talked about utopias and everything and what we want our best, you know, what we would prefer our greatest option to be. But health insurance costs a lot. And... You know, in some ways, there needs to be some cost mitigating factors. It's hard to get everybody 100% of all the health care that they would ever want because if, you know, we just made everything absolutely free at the point of service, a lot of people would be trying to get a whole lot more health care than they really need. That's not true. That's yeah, actually really not true. Not in a way that would be expensive. Um, this is something that Paul Krugman looked into and found that the things that we really spend the most money on in our healthcare system are not elective surgeries. They're things that result from really grave medical conditions where the call would be with the doctor, not with the patient. So I, I, I don't, I absolutely do not agree with the I'm idea. Talking, that I'm talking, I'm talking about like co-pays on doctor visits. Like, you know, people will go see the doctor for any old little thing if it's free at the point of service, but if it's but that's like not expensive. That's not a big expenditure. It is a big expenditure if your whole population goes to the doctor ten percent more than it otherwise would be. But that's not. I don't know. That that's not what Paul Krugman's analysis has shown. Yeah. Well, you know, all the Nordic countries that we all praise for having universal health care, they all have copays for their doctor visits. I mean, it's a big system. There are like kind of three things. Well, let me see. Maybe it's three things. Can I think of them all right now? Well, one thing is there is definitely the demand side where people need health care. People need it for, you know, all their life threatening things, the non life threatening things. 
you know, people are going to need health care and have demands for it. And there is differing amounts of demands when it's at different price points or availability, et cetera, et cetera. Then there is the supply side where there is there is only so much health care. There is not an infinite amount of health care, no matter who is paying for it. So each country that decides to have universal health care makes, you know, some choices here or there that, you know, decide on what the limiting factors on it so that everybody isn't just demanding infinite health care at all times. So there are trade-offs. There is no system that fully gives everybody everything that they want. So I just want a system where everyone has everything they need. Yeah. And many universal systems do give what they need. It's just not the maximalist position that is put forward in health or Medicare for all by Bernie Sanders or, you know, similar such plans. There are, plenty of systems there are many ways to get to universal care where everybody gets what they need um it doesn't just have to be a full-handed only the government only you know no out-of-pocket expenses ever um to achieve that there are plenty of different routes and we would have to find a way that you know fits in with the american experience of things and I believe the Australian model is one that could work in the United States well I'm certainly not going to you know if that came about it would definitely be an improvement yeah I don't, I don't want to be the the real wet blanket here but um, I, I, I've said my piece on why I prefer what I prefer so anyway Evan, what's our main topic today? Well, Joe, today we're going to talk about something that affects all of our lives, but perhaps from afar. We're going to talk about the Supreme Court of the United States, also called SCOTUS. And this is the king of our judicial body and some proposed changes to it from different presidential candidates that could radically alter the way that the court operates. Yeah. This was uh, posed to us from a listener suggestion from Dylan. Uh, We're going back to the Dylan pile. He asked a lot of good questions, and this week we're tackling Supreme Court reform. So this has become a topic over the last few years because of events that have transpired. Such events of... Mitch McConnell refusing to hear any of Barack Obama's judicial nominees when Antonin Scalia passed away in early 2016. The the Senate Majority Leader, Mr. McConnell, held that seat open for an entire year, claiming that, oh, well, the, the people should vote on the president who should, you know, rightfully uh, propose a nomination for this seat. It's up to the American people, which was just a wholesale land grab on the Supreme Court. They refused to hear the nomination of Merrick Garland. And through that, we got Neil Gorsuch to fill the seat of Antonin Scalia, which was not the biggest issue. But 
then a, I believe it was a year after, uh, Justice, I believe, Anthony Kennedy. Is that his first name? I think Justice so. Kennedy. Yes, Justice Anthony Kennedy uh, announced his retirement, which opened up another Supreme Court seat for uh, President Donald Trump to uh, put up a nomination for to fill. And he put up Brett Kavanaugh, which from these two uh, fillings, with the filling of Antonin Scalia with Neil Gorsuch, that kept the composition of the court about the same. And Anthony Kennedy was, at the time, he was the one real swing vote on the Supreme Court. So the the composition of the court, you know, but after Neil Gorsuch was, there was kind of four solidly square liberals, four kind of, kind of solidly conservative judges, and then there was Anthony Kennedy, who kind of swung between the two. With the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh, while Brett Kavanaugh has not been as staunch a conservative as initially believed, he nonetheless put the court more in the court of the conservatives with a more reliable five conservative justices to four liberal justices. And because of the whole, you know, because of the land grab done by Mitch McConnell, which, you know, he has bold facedly said, you know, if in 2020 a Supreme Court justice dies, they are going to put forward a nomination and fill that seat there. You know, it it was a bold face. I mean, it would be a hypocrisy, but, you know, calling it as such doesn't feel like it had, you know, it doesn't even have to be said. It's just what it is. Like it, you know, call you know, calling out Mitch McConnell for hypocrisies is so like 2015. But <laughs> anyway, that guy is just pure ambition. So through this, through the kind of feeling of powerlessness that the Democratic has felt in its you know ability to affect change in the Supreme Court or fulfill seat, you know nominate judges to the Supreme Court, there has been some discussion of are there possible reforms? And, uh, you know, there's been a few uh, positions put forward. Um, Sometimes I wonder, you know, you know, reform comes when, you know, there is the need for reform, but it's kind of like, ah, this has all kind of come the last couple of years when, you know, the liberals have just kind of done a hard case of or the Democrats have done a hard case of losing a bunch. But, um, yeah. So what are some of these reforms, Evan? So the biggest one that I think is worth bringing to the table is the court packing proposal of Pete Buttigieg. And court packing is the simple act of adding more justices to the Supreme Court. And that is possible. That's accounted for in the Constitution. We've had nine justices for a long time, but it hasn't always been so. There's nothing inherently wrong or unconstitutional about court packing. But Mayor Pete's proposal is quite different from something that we've heard in a very long time, if ever. 
he proposes to expand the court from nine justices all the way up to 15. And he has stipulations within his plan for the composition of the justices. Five of the justices must be recognized Democrats and five must be recognized Republicans. Although what standard a justice has for being affiliated with a political party is unclear. And the other five justices must be nonpartisan, and they are not appointed by the executive branch. Instead, they are voted on and must be voted in unanimously by the 10 partisan judges on the court. And these the partisan judges will maintain their lifetime appointments, but the nonpartisan judges will serve on one-year non-renewable terms to be selected two years in advance of their service. Hmm. And it is his belief that by deliberately balancing out the ideologies of the justices, this will allow for a depoliticization of the court. I don't necessarily agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hadn't heard his plan in as much detail, and it seems pretty damn uh, convoluted. But let's let's delve a bit into the history of court composition, or what the Supreme Court has supposed to be, and all this fun lofty go. So the Supreme Court was set up as an independent body, uh, third branch of government in the Constitution. And notably, when the Constitution was written, the whole American system was kind of predicated that there would be no political parties and that everybody would live up to be a good, moral, ambitious, uh, at the time, man, um, so that everybody would just kind of be checking ambition. There would be no need for political parties because everybody would just be trying to win over everybody. And when it came to the Supreme Court the president would have to take great uh, moral or, you know, great consideration into the uh, picking of Supreme Court justices because they are for life and that they would have to choose them in a, not for their political leanings, but for their constitutional prowess, their, their legal ability. And what we've, and the, and the Supreme Court started off, I forget how many justices it has, but in the very early days, there was not nine justices. And over time, they added more justices, and then somewhere in the 1800s, they came to nine. Now, this number is not in the Constitution anywhere. Congress can simply change the amount of justices, which... Uh, Ted Cruz floated as a possibility when if uh, Donald Trump did not win the presidency that, oh, well, we'll just have eight justices from now on, which there is great historical precedent for, which is no. Um, <laughs> it has kind of become the uh, at least the tradition or the norm that there are nine Supreme Court justices. And if either side were to change that amount, it would be a power grab. So uh, last, I, actually, yeah, I want to interject here because I think it's uh, it's uh, just a little tidbit that I learned and I think it'll be interesting to the listeners because it harkens back to our impeachment episode about Andrew Johnson. 
Um, remember that Johnson was elected on the ticket with Lincoln, but he was not of the same political party as Lincoln. And so when he took over for Lincoln, he had essentially no allies in the Congress. And so when he took office, at the time there were 10 Supreme Court justices, but Congress lowered the number of justices all the way down to seven just to stop him from being able to appoint any. Hmm, that's good. Um, I did not know that tidbit, but um, let me see what we're getting to. Last time we had bouts of ideas of court packing was way back in the FDR days where a bunch of his New Deal programs were getting struck down in the courts and he did not like that. So he threatened the Supreme Court that he was going to put nine more justices of his appointment on the bench. And apparently that scared them good enough that they just kind of let some of his stuff go through. But anyway, so we have the Supreme Court that is, at least in the constitutional theory and in the history of the thought of the Supreme Court, is supposed to be an apolitical party or uh, an apolitical branch of government where, you know, we have these lifetime appointments. So none of the justices are thinking about ambition, trying to, you know, get on to the next level of government, trying to really prove something to anyone. They're just supposed to be there to do their uh, do some law, make some decisions. They'll never face re-election, so they don't have to appease anyone once they're on the bench. Yep, they are completely free to do their justicing. And they were supposed to just do, you know, within the eyes of the Constitution. But what has happened since uh, the founding over the course of all these years? I mean, it happened pretty early on, too. But we had the invention of political parties. Or not the invention. I mean, they came to the United States. They had been in other countries. Before, the proliferation but, of political parties, yeah, which came immediately after the signing of the Declaration or the Constitution. But anyway, so what has happened is now, instead of a bunch of individual players being individually checked and you know have kind of pure non-political uh, motivations. We have a system where you can have a party that can be strong enough to exert its vision over all three branches of government at any one time, which, you know, I, I, in some ways I'm fine with in the president, you know, in the, in the executive and legislative branch, but the judicial branch is supposed to be the one branch that is apolitical or at least uh, counter-majoritarian or counter-cyclical, whatever you want to call it. One institution that is kind of free from the politics of the day-to-day. But with these parties that can exert control over the other two uh, sides of the government, they can just kind of put partisan people into the Supreme Court. And that's not accounted for in how the Supreme Court works because these nominees serve for the rest of their lives. And, you know, and the uh, nomination of Supreme Court justices is 
widely, you know, uh, can happen in as few or as many as, you know, just circumstance happens. So Barack Obama had two nominations in his entire eight years. In the first two years, Trump had two. Just as many as justices as Barack Obama had put on the court. And theoretically, a president, you know, if circumstance comes to bear, could theoretically have to replace all nine justices or as many justices as they deem should be on the court. Um, So it's not the most, you know, if it was truly an apolitical institution, then this wouldn't be an issue. Because, you know, we would just have these law scholars be on the Supreme Court for life and they would, you know, call balls and strikes, which they like to think they do. And instead of making liberal or liberal or conservative calls. So one reform that I've been a fan of that was actually first proposed on a nationwide scale by none other than Republican Rick Perry in the 2012 uh, Republican primary that there continue to be nine justices and they serve one 18-year term where each president every two years nominates someone for the Supreme Court. They serve out that 18 years and then they're done which brings down the stakes of the Supreme Court because right now the stakes are so high. People get it for life. Brett Kavanaugh was what, like in his late 40s? He's going to be on the Supreme Court for like three decades or some shit like that. That's a lot of Brett Kavanaughing. And he's going to have effects way longer than, you know, Trump is alive, than any parts of his movement or anything. But Brett Kavanaugh is still going to be there being a Supreme Court nominee. There should be some, if it's going to be a political institution, there needs to be some sort of fairness or accountability or some rolling stock. And I believe having every justice having an 18 year term, one being replaced every two years is a decent way to do it. Yeah. um, So I generally don't like term limits for, say, legislators or executive branch, because my theory is if someone is doing a good job and it's the will of the people to keep them in office longer than a hypothetical term limit, why should we stop them? But I think it makes more sense for a Supreme Court justice for the reasons that Joe laid out. And I think that maybe the the potential weakness is that it still doesn't account for say an unexpected death and so i think there would need to be more reforms in addition if, to like if it was an unexpected death then you know the current president would just nominate someone for the rest of whoever that person who died's term or something like that but and you know, I know I cut you off in the middle of something, but, you know, hell, now that I think of it, you know, with terms that long, who knows, maybe even there doesn't need to be term limits, but they would just have to get re-nominated again. Um, so. I, so what, how, yeah. how would that work? What do you mean re-nominated? Explain that. I mean, like if you do your 18 year term 
And then whatever president comes along and is like, hey, you're going to be kicked out of here 18 years, but I still like what you're doing. I'll re I'll bring you on as my choice for the next 18 year term that I'm filling this year. So in a sense, being reelected, but um, with a constituency of one. Yeah. Okay. I I I like that. Yeah. Yeah. The terms are so long. I mean, we don't need to limit them to one term. They would just have to be renominated for the same position or a different. Yeah. For a new 18 year term. Yeah, okay. Um, So just to sort of summarize, I think that there would still be things, uh, kinks to get ironed out. I don't think that that would stop, you know, that certainly wouldn't have stopped the theft of the Merrick Garland seat, but it seems, I'm I'm open to that idea. Seems like it would be progress. You see, the one thing that is tough with it is because it requires Senate approval which in the tradition of the United States may, or in the United States, which means calling again, calling kind of balls and strikes, non-political thinking, or at least in the mid 20th century version of the norm. So, you know, somebody who's political could, you know, come into the, you know, uh, Senate for, you know, what the constitution calls as advice and consent and you know a uh, you know a conservative person could nominate a conservative judge and maybe get them in, or what has traditionally happened is that um, during times of mixed Congress, a more moderate uh, judge would be proposed that is not as offensive to the opposing party's sensibilities, which was the whole point of Merrick Garland was he was as kind of cut and you know cut down the middle you know middle of the road guy that even a republican had offhandedly said would have to be obama's nominee and there was just the wholesale theft of it again to keep using that phrase mm-hmm. so um if there was some way i mean i do believe in some sort of check on the nominating process because as we've seen with Trump and a lot of his lower court nominees, a lot of them are just wholly unqualified. Yeah, have never like, heard a case, be- have never tried a case before. Yeah. Like, like not even, oh, this guy's bad. I don't like his opinion. It's just not qualified materially. Um, so I do believe that there should be some sort of check on it, but it would have to be some sort of you know, the Senate has to convene for a vote. Otherwise, the, the seat will be filled and it has to be fulfilled in however many days or some something like that. Um, some rules that make sure that a a nominee does get appointed. Yeah. And that's that's the biggest part, because right now it's at the leisure of the Senate you know, for giving advice and consent, um, which it, a lot of our our uh, our political system is set up that there is supposed to be deference given to the process. But we're finding out that if you don't give deference to the process, you can do a lot of strong arming and, you know, win a whole lot more. Yeah, a lot than, of the backstops are norms and not actual legal guidelines 
Yeah, so Mitch McConnell, who is hell-bent on winning, can, you know, he can play the games to the maximum if he doesn't care about the norms. You know, this is kind of like me when I watch football. I think everybody should go on all the fourth downs and should go for the two-point conversions and do onside kicks because that seems to be what people do when they really want to win when they're down just by a little bit. Why not do that the whole time? And Mitch McConnell was like, hey, why don't we do this the whole time? Well, this is actually getting off topic, but it's with the influx of analytics in football. Actually, the data is showing that your strategy is actually probably better than the traditional punt, one point, extra point, blah, blah, blah. But that's sort of not really related, but just you, you're, you're not, you're no longer some rogue outsider. A lot of people who really care about football are advocating that view. Um, because it, it's kind of, it is like a deference thing. It's like, whenever I watch football, it's like, Oh, they're, they're two yards down. And here we go with the ceremonial kick to the other side. They'll pick up the ball and they will then take possession of it. Oh, what a turn of events, the turning over of power. But what if someone was like, no, fuck it. I'm not giving them the power. We're going to go for it. And that's what Mitch McConnell has done, at least in the modern era. Um, He has been very good at strong arming whatever the fuck he wants. He's doing it at impeachment right now. And, you know, there's nothing in the Constitution to stop him. Um, There's no, like, Supreme Court case that you could file against him for whatever's going on. Um there is no workaround, at least specified in the Constitution. I mean, with the Merrick Garland case, there was some speculation that, you know, uh, Obama could do some sort of rogue appointment because they refused to hear his nominee. But I don't really believe in that. Um, that would at least be majorly tried out in the court or that at least be a constitutional crisis, but it was kind of a constitutional crisis when it happened. What if the Supreme Um, court had to hear a case about the constitutionality of appointing one of its justices? Yeah, that would, uh, that would be a huge calamity. The, the, you would, there's nothing stopping them. You know, it's like calling your own foul in street ball. Um, you know, if, if that justice, you would hope that they would tr- recuse themselves from that case, but there's nothing stopping them from just staying on the case. So there, there's a lot of the, a lot of the United States government, as set out in the Constitution, has a lot of norms that are supposed to be the backdrop that can be broken by any individual at any time and also doesn't account for parties. And this is all coming together in the Supreme Court. Like conservative voters care deeply about the Supreme Court because like their biggest issue or one of the biggest animating issues of the conservative movement, which has been abortion for the last um, 40 years, 50 years, has was settled in the courts. So there's been this belief that, oh, well, if we keep having Republicans in office, no matter what stripe, as long as they nominate judges that are anti Roe v. Wade, then we'll be doing good in our uh, voting. And there's no similar 
vision in liberals because we want, you know, kind of the Democrats, liberals, you know, there is some ways, you know, that the, uh, you know, the Congress people and the actual political players, you know, understand the politics of it. But Democratic voters want to believe in the apolitical nature of the Supreme Court and therefore don't want to play it in a political manner. So they don't play it in a political manner, which just allows the Republicans to play with it however they want. Just kind of let Mitch McConnell do what he wants. Mm -hmm. And it's a hard game because if, you know, if uh, Democrats started playing real hardball with it, then they would probably lose a lot of support from their supporters because, hey, what are you doing there? That's you're playing hardball. This is not what we do. This is not how that's supposed to work. Yada, yada, yada. So I just rewatched the movie The Ides of March, which is about a fictional Democratic presidential primary. And at one point, the junior campaign manager, Stephen Meyer, played by Ryan Gosling, is admonishing the opposing campaign manager, played by Paul Giamatti. And he says, Oh, come on. That's that's what a Republican would do. And Paul Giamatti says, you're damn right. It's what a Republican should do. And that's what we need to start doing because they're tougher than us and they've been beating us for years. Yeah. So I am a believer, at least in the spirit of what I have uh, Rick Perry proposed of having termed Supreme Court justices that do 18 year terms and everybody's uh, you know, every two years there's a nominating process for the president take a little heat off of it, maybe help restore a little legitimacy to the Supreme Court because there has been a little bit of a waning over recent years because of you know, the kind of uh, the, the politics that has been played with the nominating process Um, so who knows? It's, I feel like there needs to be a, there needs to be a kind of reimagining of some of the core systems of the United States government that takes into account party politics. That doesn't mean everything has to be thrown out, just kind of a retooling. But, um, this is one area where that is more needed than in other places. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that, as with the case for any of these complex systems, no one reform is going to be the one that helps. But we have to start thinking more seriously about what series of changes we need to make to restore faith in democratic processes that's been lost increasingly over the decades. But uh, Mayor Pete's proposal probably wouldn't help all that much yeah pretty convoluted and one of the craziest parts of it to me is i think a logical question is well what if the partisan judges can't unanimously decide on the remaining five judges and the only contingency plan that he has for that that he's ever publicly stated is that if they can't fill the rest of the seats the court doesn't have a quorum and the they can't hear cases until they pick somebody. Yeah, which I mean, seems no, a little see seems a little silly to handcuff see, your your uh, your most important judicial body and like make them play together in the sandbox. That 
Yeah. Okay. I don't I I can. It's it's kind of going to a belief that yes, the Supreme Court should be an apolitical institution. But if half or you know over half of it is politics or political, then how is the whole thing going to you know work in any sort of apolitical manner? Um, and I think another important thing that's sort of a problem with the Buttigieg plan is that he's conflating moderates with being apolitical. Being moderate or being a centrist is still a political bend that will influence how the court works. That's It's not just saying because you're in the middle of a Democrat and a Republican, somehow you don't have any biases or predispositions. I mean, how this goes into a greater conversation about, you know, centrism and moderate, but, you know, most people who are either centrist or seen as moderate in politics, it's kind of, you know, they don't kind of neatly sort into either of the two parties, but that doesn't mean that they can't have extreme views. They just mm-hmm. have extreme view. They just have extreme views that don't neatly sort into the two parties. Yeah. Um, not that they have views that are in between the two um, or, you know, um, more, quote, moderate version of it. So even moderate judges can have, you know, the one area where they're quite an outlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, uh, yeah, give it another think. I'm always thinking about these things. Supreme Court is such a, uh, I mean, like, like we're, it, it just has so much intensity around it because it's so much at stake. Um, these courts last for a long time and these people on them do a whole lot of judging. And if they, you know, if they aren't doing what you like, that can be a real source of pain, which you know, has, like we said, has been a inciting factor for Republican voters for a while now. <laughs> you know, they see a bunch of court cases on, you know, Roe v. Wade essentially uh, inventing the right to an abortion out of the Constitution or, uh, you know, to a lesser extent, Hodgkins v. Obergefell, Hodgkins v. Obergefell which is the one that gave the right to gave marriage, which they see as essentially being, you know, brought out of thin air. Um, now, I don't hold these views necessarily, but um, liberal jurisprudence has always been different than conservative Jewish jurisprudence. But just bringing the the heat down, you know, there's so much calamity over, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, you know, if she fucking makes it, to 2021, oh man, that's, that's, that that's crazy. Cause she wasn't looking so great in 2016. Yeah. Um, and it's if, been said that her decision not to retire during the Obama administration may outpace, the rest of her legacy if she can't make it through to the next democratic president which is so much pressure on her because if if she 
She's like, if I die, everything that I will have worked for in my judicial career could very well just be reversed by the person who replaces me mm-hmm. or in the hands of the person who replaces is her. And fuck, that's got to be some extent existential life shit. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, you know, she's doing stuff to live in order to fulfill a world vision that will exist after her life. Also, isn't that a West Wing thing? Like Bartlett realizes that one of his Supreme Court justices is really slipping, but he doesn't want to retire and give up the seat. Yeah, because he yeah, because the justice is afraid that uh, Bartlett will nominate someone who's just a moderate hack and, you know, won't fully, you know, go for the all the causes that, you know, the 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 justice who is losing it chair you know champions mm-hmm. so it's uh i mean supreme court justices are people too but yeah if we could just lifetime appointment it, it's weird because then we get into the dimension of well it's either until they call it quits or they die now if the the idea is that they're supposed to call it quits at some point well that ain't happening. Yeah. And you can't force that to happen. Um, yeah. If you want that to happen, you have to explicitly include it in something like a term. Yeah. What if you could, uh, we get to the future of technology and it's like, it's a lifetime appointment until one year before your death. And <laughs> then we're like, then some weird government body in the middle, you know, way deep in the intelligence world is like, we are proud or we are saddened to announce the retirement of this Supreme Court justice. And they're like, what? What? I'm going to die in a year? <laughs> yeah. Someone, if, if you're a listener who has a proclivity for writing sci-fi stories, write this, write this story. Yes, this is a, this is a Joe idea out there for you. Just do it until I do it in no, where, where does that go on the pile? That's like 50 projects away. So you got some time. Do you write short fiction, Joe? Nope, but... Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, I think that's about all on the Supreme Court. Do we have a end segment? I could talk about um, 1917 again. <laughs> <laughs> Two weeks uh, in a know. row. <laughs> Oh, let's uh let's do some wild like even wilder uh gesticulating about the Iowa caucus that just happened. Like just try to guess what happened. Yeah, so uh to our listeners, we are recording we recorded a double episode on the 26th. So uh yeah, we are recording this before the Iowa caucus, but we are talking to you after it. So or on the same day of the Iowa caucus? The, oh, yeah, it's the same day. Yeah, same day. Oh, man, it's crazy that letter that came out about Andrew Yang. Oh, yeah, the one that said that he was immediately named president and they didn't need the Iowa caucus. Oh, I, w- I was going for something else. But, 
it's crazy that that picture of Elizabeth Warren eating a corn dog got that big. It just it really showed that she was relatable. The selfie lines didn't do it. We needed her eating a, an Iowa corn dog. Um what what else what else happened in the last week? Can you believe that um it was revealed that Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer faked his college degree? <laughs> you know, that would be a pretty good one. Um I remember seeing something a while back where like a college president had like plagiarized a good part of their senior thesis or their yes. dissertation. Didn't that happen at Southern SIU, Southern Illinois? I don't I don't, I don't know where it happened. That's all, that's all what my memory of it is, of it. yeah. Man. You'd think with something like that, you would just kind of uh, fade off into the universe. Yeah. Like, hey, why are you a doctorate and you're teaching elementary school? Nobody's going to ask. <laughs> um, what else has happened in the last week? Oh, man, I can't believe Joe Biden said those off-color remarks. Yes, you can. You can believe it. I can't believe Bernie Sanders gave the same stump speech that he gave in 1987. Yeah, you can believe it. Hey, remember, remember Corn Pop? Yeah, I love Pops. Corn Pop, though. Remember that whole Joe Biden thing where he talked about oh, that, that black guy he saw, met at the I pool? I thought you were talking about the cereal, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Corn Pop. <laughs> I, I can't believe that story. Well, I can believe that story was true, but it's just so weird. It's just so. And he tells it in a way that's so white. So white. It is like a story of white knighting. And, yeah. And it's in such a generic way that you're like, oh, this can't be true. And then it is true. The, the tufts between Joe Biden and and uh, Corn Pop in the, you know, the poor neighborhoods in Delaware. Because <laughs> I can't name yes. I can't name a city in Delaware. Wilmington. There we go. That's good enough for me. And we hope it's good enough for all of you. Yes. Uh, this has been our episode of Adequately Informed. A bit of housekeeping. Um, Evan and I have not discussed this, but next week I am on... Well, this week after this episode comes out and next week I am on vacation. So next week there will most likely not be an episode of Adequately Informed. Um, We will resume after that, just one week off. But... Uh, with that we will return we will come back better than ever we will take up all those reviews that you have given us on Apple Podcasts we will continue to be grateful for you listening and we will continue to be me, Joe and I'm Mike Wallace 
And we will continue to hope that you've been adequately informed.